Hello everyone, this is Shweb Khan here at Anti-Small Talk and today is our ninth episode in our Heroes Without Capes Voices from Within the Classroom podcast series. Over the past six or seven, eight weeks, we've been talking to our nation's educators about their views on education, getting understanding of their stories, things they love, things they don't necessarily love, things they found challenging during the course of this global pandemic. Today I'm delighted to announce we have the wonderful Rosie Georgiou, who tweets at EduFeminist, talking to us about her experiences, her inspirations and her incredible PhD work. Hello Rosie and welcome to Anti-Small Talk. Hello, thank you for having me. No, it's really, really exciting. Um, I think I come across your Twitter handle at one stage. I thought, who is Edu Feminist? And I've got to have this <laughs> on some stage. So uh, that's our first question, actually. Okay, who is the Edu Feminist? Okay. Um, well, so I guess if I go by the identity on the Twitter handle, that is my teaching Twitter, um, and they're the two things that are really important to me: education and feminism. Um, and for a while. I think that I thought they were separate. Um, so my original handle ne- didn't have anything to do with my feminism or my politics. And it was originally Rosie Outlook 305. Mm. So when I first started as a trainee, I was really excited about everything. And I felt that I had quite a rosy outlook on education. Um, and as time went on and I've gone on and done things like my master's and now my PhD, I've realised how important my feminism actually is to me as a person and to my identity in general so that's why my twitter handle is edgy feminist because i'm an educator and i'm a feminist and i think they are really the two core strands of my identity absolutely absolutely that's that's really cool because i'd consider myself as a feminist not necessarily an active one but uh and this gonna sound like a really strange question i cut off topic okay um out of the three like there's different strands of feminism okay is there one in particular that you prefer or would generally associate yourself more than others or do you think as it as a general thing that you just want to endorse do you mean the like the three waves of feminism yes yes okay i do you know what this is one of my favorite questions because we're actually in the fourth wave we are actually in the fourth wave. the whole social media technical yeah 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 we're actually in the fourth wave and so i consider myself a fourth wave feminist um One of my favourite things about fourth wave feminism is that it is not happy with the work that the previous three waves have done. So women have achieved amazing things. We've got the vote. Um, You know, women are working and we're working towards closing the gender pay gap and women that are having children are campaigning for flexible work. So there are lots of brilliant things that have happened but there are some things that fourth wave feminism really points the finger at previous waves and says, that's not good enough. So one of the key facets is that it's intersectional um, and that feminism until the 90s really did not represent enough women. It was only serving a particular demographic. So third wave and fourth wave feminism are really campaigning for intersectional feminism and equality across all kinds of people from all walks of life. So that's why I identify as a fourth waiver, because I think although we've achieved great things, there's a lot more to be done, Um, particularly in representing lots of different kinds of women and femininity, and also campaigning for men and masculinity, because feminism doesn't just serve women. And I think it's really important that we remember that. There are lots of issues with toxic masculinity. Absolutely. 
really don't get spoken about enough in public forums and feminists are doing the work for men um and i think that that's something that's important as well no you're absolutely correct and i think you're right i think the sentiment i always get with fourth wave feminists is that progress kind of it needs to carry on it's not it's yeah. a con- endless uh, uh model towards a movement and a vehicle towards social change and it's going to happen through you know innovating changing and adopting that intersectional design you're absolutely right i was watching was it ross kemp on gangs or something and he was in somewhere like columbia and there was um you know uh ladies there working there in the fields uh, um picking um i think it was coffee i think they were picking and uh it, it played in the back of my mind thinking that we've had great success here in the uk but that level of success for women across you know the countries women of color you know uh, mm. even our um lgbtq plus community how we can adapt that in there it's really really important that we branch out and we bring everyone and i think it's really boils down to the idea of it's equality for everyone or it's equality for no one so it's yeah. uh, also recognizing privilege i think this is what 2020 has kind of been about leading 2021 so recognizing our privileges as you know white people asian people uh, even with our genders as well so all these sort of like you know, strands of inequality or equality kind of need to be crossed over first to, to tear apart social structures and, and say, yeah, things are not fair for you because of this, this and this, not just because of one characteristic. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think my favourite thing, probably if I had to sum up fourth wave feminism, I would say it's not enough. Mm. Like, I think that's how fourth wave feminists feel. I mean, I know I'm speaking for a really big group here. Uh, it's definitely how I feel. The, yeah, this is great, but it's not enough. And I think that it taps into lots of the things that we've seen in 2020 as well, like- Racism, stuff like that, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you need to educate yourself. You need to be aware of your own privilege and in being aware of your own privileges, you need to be aware of the fact that other people do not have that. So having your eyes open, being aware that that is not enough. Your own lived experience being the only lens that you see the world through is not enough. So yeah, I think um, the other thing I love is that it's online. Um, I love the art being made. I think it's fantastic. It's whole postmodern, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Abstract art, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's great and it's, you know, I mean, platforms like Instagram have really taken a turn in the sense that well, I don't know about you, but when I first got my Instagram account, I was taking photos of my food and like. I didn't, the, get, that uh, I didn't get that far. No. Uh, no, no, I didn't know. The sunset, you know, like my. I've got a few, them, yeah. I've got a few sunset photos. Yeah, yeah. I think some yes. of them. Yeah. Yeah. But it was like, it was this autobiographical platform, right? Where you were sharing your life with your loved ones and sometimes a wider platform. Whereas now, when you, or maybe because I. I'm part of a feminist echo chamber on there. So I do need to be mindful of that. But when I log onto that platform, I see a lot of content that's been made particularly for the platform. So some amazing activism by body positive influencers and illustrators and content creators. People are making digital activist content in the form of artwork and clips and sounds and podcasts and putting stuff up on Instagram as a way of sharing. And I think that kind of that aspect of it can go viral, that potential, the potential for something to go viral, I think is one of the things that's so exciting about the movement. Because when something goes and all of a sudden that engagement increases and your audience explodes, 
and you're reaching people that otherwise you wouldn't reach and then more traditional forms of media start to become engaged in the activism i think that's when it gets really exciting i'll never forget oprah's me too speech mm. golden globes yes yes i remember that yes yes that was such an amazing moment in history because not only was the speech itself powerful the art that came from that the posters the photos of her the captions um all of the hashtags that come with it as a way of archiving the process mm. i think that's something that i'm also really interested in is how do we archive the content that we've made that is part of our digital activism because mm. once it's published provided you don't delete it it's there forever yeah. i mean and arguably even once it's been deleted it's there forever but mm. i'm not necessarily tech savvy enough to kind of work around that limitation mm. but yeah so that that sense of sharing content that is activist the way in which it's shared and the potential for really big engagement because of the nature of the movement and how it spreads so quickly. I just love it. I think it's so exciting. No, you're right. It becomes a world of its own, doesn't it? Which is really cool. That's what I always find. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Even like when I'm blogging and stuff and even podcasting, you see people in like, I don't know, Afghanistan listening to you thinking, wow, you know, how did it get there? It's insane. It's reached someone else and the, the global outreach of it's enormous as well. Well, it's unlimited potential in that respect. Once you release something, if it resonates, it's got unlimited potential. And I think you realise with that activism that actually you represent people. And that's really important because what we're noticing about social media is that you are able to represent people that on traditional forms of media may feel that they are unrepresented. So therefore, social media creates this platform for the minorities, the marginalised voices, right? Um, That's really cool, because all of a sudden, it's like a place where you find your tribe. Mm. People think like you do and share your ideas. There's so much about that that's brilliant. I mean, of course, there there are limitations with everything. Mm. Everything has a danger. But... um, I think, yeah, that's why fourth wave feminism excites me so much because it's moved from the page onto what I would consider more of a platform. Yep, yep um, absolutely. And it brings with it this whole sort of sense of performance and theatre. And I don't think that feminism was particularly theatrical before now. Mm-hmm. Whereas now that there are people who are taking photographs and they're dressing up um, or dressing down and you've got these body positive influencers who are posing naked, who are campaigning for the fact that they should be able to do that because slimmer people were doing it, not having their content removed, but um, well, essentially fatter people that have put naked photos up, have had their content removed. And then there's been activism around that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think it's amazing. It's a really reactive movement, mm-hmm. which is really cool. Mm-hmm. I think it's needed at a time where we need, do need social change and where, you know, marginalized voices are not being heard. It's uh, it's fascinating. Something I definitely need to be, you know, getting into more and understanding more because if like, I think me and Carl Pupe talked about Action Hero Teacher, shout out to Action Hero Teacher. I know you're going to be listening to this, but me and him talked about if we put our name to a, a particular flag and we say we're going to be inclusion, diversity, we do talk about all strands of that. We can't simply mm. include people. So I've been trying to educate myself more and more on transphobia because a lot of my friends have said to me, sure, I've never heard anyone been transphobic. doesn't mean it doesn't exist. No, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It's definitely out there in the public domain and, and the trans community do feel very targeted. So educating using the right, you know, pronouns and nouns and 
know, addressing people with they and, and asking them, you know, what they feel comfortable with asking them about. And in, 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 a, in a sincere and compassionate way, not in a transactional way, it's, it's a learning curve and a process. And I think we're going to do that by having these conversations. Do you know what? I've got a couple of thoughts on that. One, I don't think it's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I'm not dismissing a big issue, but what I mean is, hello, my name's Rosie. My pronouns are she, her. What's your name and what are your pronouns? I don't think it has to be a particularly difficult conversation to have. I think if you introduce yourself with your name and your pronouns, I, that's a really comfortable way of doing it. And it normalizes it. I have my pronouns on my email sign off at work and on my email sign off on my personal email and on my Twitter handle. Um, I actually think it's really important. So yeah, I do think that, I mean, my brother is gay. So we have conversations about gender, the importance of your identity, feeling seen for who you are, being accepted and loved for who you are, not being dismissed or invisible. Um, So I have a lot to thank him for in the sense that I'm interested in these things as a feminist anyway. I do a lot of reading around gender and pronouns. Um, So maybe I have a natural bias towards that. But I also have those conversations at home with my family but yeah so I, I don't think it should be difficult hello my name's Rosie I go by she her what's your name and we're teaching children Absolutely. with children who are growing up mm-hmm. in a world where this is more important than ever before mm-hmm. I have I've taught children that are tra- transitioning mm-hmm. and they need to feel that they're seen and represented even though I myself am not transitioning and at the don't have any plans to in the future um you know if that doesn't change we'll find out but so i yeah i make it i make it my business to make sure that all children feel that in one way or another they're represented and respected by me absolutely absolutely that's the way forward you know that and i think that's why we struck up such a uh, a good conversation to start with i think we did zoom before and it lasts like two hours and it was it's <laughs> a general chit chat about inclusion i can see you know how passionate you are about it um but linking into this fourth way feminism rosie okay so in your bio okay we spoke about okay you're doing a phd at the montford okay um yeah. okay can you like shed some light on that because i know you're very passionate about the work that you're doing okay and it's very particular like i've never heard of anything like this before so it's unique okay would you want to shed some light on that for us please <laughs> yeah uh, yeah i'm more than happy to do that so i am in my first year of my phd i wrote my proposal up in the summer um, and because I'm in my first year, I'm still very much in the stages of having the project completely approved by the university. I'll have my first review in January. Um, but the proposal at the minute outlines the following. So I will be tracing the shifts in feminist politics and considering the ways in which Chicklet responded to these concerns, if at all, in the 90s. Um, some research has been done on that before. So my original contribution to knowledge will be identifying those gaps with contemporary chiclet, if it still exists, because their chiclet has been declared dead on many occasions. Um, And then taking all of the findings, so that will form my literature review and the critical component of my research, taking all of the findings as to the relationship between feminist politics and chiclet, and then filling that gap with my own creative writing. So the, the proposal essentially 
outlines that I will pioneer a new feminist chiclet genre, which doesn't exist at the moment. That's ambitious, but really cool, actually, to be fair. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but really cool. When I say it out loud, it's terrifying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when I'm writing, the words come. Mm. Uh, but when I, re- you know, when I speak the words out loud and it goes from being something in my head to something real that I share with other people, it is, yeah, a very ambitious project and quite scary. But somebody has to do it. Absolutely. That's, that's the truth. That's the truth thing. Before we started, like, to our listeners, before we started this conversation, myself and Rosie were talking about being the first one to say things and sometimes the onus is on us. Sometimes you've got to grab the bull by the horns, don't you, and say, do you know what? I need to say this. Now, I've got an opportunity to say, I'm going to say, or I need to research this. And it needs to be something in yeah. the public domain. So if you're passionate about it, absolutely, yeah. I think it's going to be incredible, you know that. And I, obviously, I'll follow your journey as well along the way, which would be really, really cool as well. So, yeah. Um, so, Rosie, okay, we've got some more questions here for you, okay? Um, yeah. Let's go for some like general teacher questions, okay, just to get to know you a bit better, okay? So if we walked into your classroom right now, let's say you're teaching at, yeah, because no one teaches at 7 o'clock. I'm just saying, <laughs> okay, uh, if let's say we walked into your classroom on a normal day, what would we expect to typically see from your English classroom? Yeah, so yes. I'm an English teacher. Um, I teach year 11, 12 and 13 because I'm part-time to allow me to do my studying. So you will see a very focused exam class. Um, so I teach the exam texts to the GCSE groups. I think I'm a, I'm a firm but fair teacher. Um, I like a calm, focused room. I have very clear routines um, and I like to provide structure for my students. It comes from really feeling that structure is one of the things that my kids need from me. So the schools that I've taught in, for the most part, um, with the exception of a couple of years, serve largely deprived backgrounds um so i have a lot of underprivileged students and sometimes home life can be very chaotic so what i try to do is to create a really safe structured environment for my kids so that they come in they know exactly what to expect um, to be consistent so that's one of the things that i take very seriously no routines routines for learning are very very important because you don't know what's going on at home. You don't know if there are any consistency at home at all. So if you're the only consistent person in their life there, I say, especially in these deprived schools, I went to, I work myself in a very deprived school as well. If they don't have that level of consistency at home, they can get it at school. And having those clear expectations, routines are really, really important. In terms of behavior management, um, what works for you? Because I know people try loads of different things. Do, uh, is there anything that particularly works for you? People do countdown, people do all sorts of different things. Okay, is there anything that you found particularly good? Because I need some tips because I've got some difficult classes. I'm not lying. This is- <laughs> um, well, the, the behavior routines I've used, they have they've depended on the school that I'm in and the culture of the school at the, at the moment, the school that I'm in has um, a really big focus on every teacher being consistent with school policy. So some of the policies that we use are countdown five, four, three, two, one students respond really well to it because all teachers are using it. Um, so I make sure that I use what other teachers are using because it's really effective in that school. One of the things that I would say is a, behavior tool that lots of people don't talk about is marking the books um i know my kids inside out i mark their books um i'm really hot on that not everybody is and marking is quite unfashionable 
at the moment. It's fallen out of fashion. Um, and I, I, hate so I, hate I hate it to be honest with you. I hate marking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's boring. Do you but... know what? I realised how powerful marking was in my training year because I was doing Teach First. I had a year 11 group. They were set two. And I think we'd got to the October half term and I hadn't looked at the books. I was busy surviving. Mm. I was busy surviving. And um, one day one of the students said to me, Miss, are you ever going to look at our books? And I had a bit of a reality check mm. because my mentor then said, we really need to look at the books. Um, and I, once I started to mark their work, and I knew what their strengths were, and I learned the students from their work, I, I transformed as a teacher. Um, I was then marking that year 11 group's work every week. So they would do exam practice on a Friday period five because English was timetabled in at Friday period five. I think that is a terrible timetabling mistake. And if anybody that timetables is listening, I would advise that core subjects are never timetabled in on a Friday period five. I would get year 11 to do PE or an option subject. I agree. <laughs> or food tech or art. Yep, absolutely. So I had a Friday period five with my set two year 11 and I gave them exam practice every week. Um, they were a big group. There were 32 of them. And I will be honest and say that marking their work at first was difficult. Mm. I got very quick at it. Um, so yeah, the long answer to your question is I do mark as a behavior management tool mm. because I know the students really well. I know what they're good at. It allows me to have personal conversations with them. Um, I'm not advocating for a ridiculous teacher workload. I don't believe in that at all. But I think marking where it matters, yep. and that's what's important, yep. marking where it matters is key. And for me, exam groups are really, really important. And those students went on to make incredible progress. I had a boy in that group. They were all boys. But this particular boy was working an E when I first marked his work in the October. And I'm... Um, I wasn't sure of my marking, so I asked the head of English to moderate me, and she said, no, he's working at an E-grade. Anyway, the end of the year, he came out with two Bs. That's incredible. Mum bought me a massive bottle of perfume and a bottle of wine. Oh, that's incredible. That's really, really yeah, cool. I did it, but it was nice. Mm. So, yeah, I think, and I always do that with my exam groups. I like to know them really well. Mm. I think right. knowing how they write, I teach sociology and RE, so understanding how they analyse text and use their sources as well is really, really important. Um, it's very, I think the issue I think teachers find in marking is especially when it's purposeless, and we do get purposeless marking at times where, you know, you, there's a school that I worked at where you'd have a different colour pen for each year group, mm. and you'd, you'd stick in this sheet and this coloured sheet, and it's not going to empirical data behind it or reasoning behind it it's not been mandated or validated everywhere so anywhere any, any other country any other school so it can be add to workload but if you're with the key exam groups like i teach a key exam group as well having that dialogue with their work is important you get to know them and i think you're right i think you're absolutely right it's got to have a purpose it's got to be meaningful and impactful and progress otherwise we're doing it for the sake of it and it shouldn't be the, and it shouldn't be like teaching for the sake of marking as well it should be teaching for the sake of teaching and assessing to assess for progress, that sort of thing. I don't think anything in teaching should be for the sake of anything. Mm. If it is not in the best interest of the kids mm. that are in front of you, 
you shouldn't be doing it. That's how I feel. I think everything should be really purposeful. And I think if something is really purposeful, then you get buy-in. I don't think it's hard to get buy-in from teachers because teachers want the kids to do well. I think when you reach those obstacles is where teachers as professionals are starting to question, but why are we doing this? Is this additional workload for the sake of workload and for busy work? Or is it in the best interest of the kids? Because all of the teachers that I know, um, I know some really respectable professionals, always want to do what's right by the kids. You know, I've worked with people that would go in on a Saturday morning every week for months, um, unpaid, without question, because it was the only way to get, this is back when we did coursework, it was the only way to get those kids over the line. It was not requested by the school. It wasn't even encouraged by the school. But that particular teacher had a group that really needed extra intervention, no additional time to do it, rang parents and said, I really want to support your child. I'm going to come in on Saturday between nine and 12, and I'm going to do it from December through till February. Um, this is time that I'm willing to give. Please send your son. And the kids responded really well to it. The workload shouldn't have been so that she had to do that. Mm. And I that and I'm not promoting it but what I'm saying is all of the teachers that I've worked with and especially the ones that I've respected they always want to do right by the kids and getting buy-in on that has never been hard in my experience mm. the thing that starts to get resistance where teachers are saying I'm not convinced that that strategy is going to work or be effective or is actually in the best interest of the kids that's when teachers start to question things Absolutely, absolutely. And people start pulling in different directions. I think uh, when I worked in schools as well, and we've had, you know, marking policies introduced, I like to know where they've come from. I like to know, you know, where has it been successful? Can we go to this school or this institution? Can we see best practice? And if it's not demonstrated by senior leaders to us, how do we know what is best, best practice? So, um, and even the whole notion of toxic, you know, productivity, people being productive, making displays, simply because they've got time to make a display or they've got to take an objective off for the day. I like to think that if I've taught my lessons to a, a, a respectable level, to a respectable level, and I've kept my respect intact as well while teaching those lessons as well, I like to think I've done okay. But I think there's this notion that we have to look busy all the time as teachers, which again leads to things like burnout and people becoming more and more disillusioned what we're doing and you know, you can see our retention and recruitment figures, you know, the amount of teachers that have left depression in the past. I think it was 40,000, I think in 2019. I can't imagine what it's going to be like post-pandemic, but um, we've got to somehow find a, a middle ground that works. That's, you know, aid student progress also um, you know, allows teachers to have some form of work-life balance. It shouldn't be the case to have to have a, have a day off or, you know, go part-time simply to have a work-life balance. Teaching should fit around our lives. That's what I think anyway. No, I agree with you completely. I think we've got the well-being paradox, haven't we? Well-being is at the forefront of the teaching agenda. Mm. But if you speak to, to some teachers, at least, not everybody feels very well. Mm. Um, and ultimately, if you are in a good or outstanding school, then you should feel well in the sense that you should feel supported. Your senior leaders um, should have structures and systems in place that allow for that balance to exist because it's a profession and we're professionals but we don't exist just as professionals we exist as human beings mm -hmm. so once we go home 
there needs to be space for home life. There needs to be space for relationships and for exercise mm. and overall health and well-being because your purpose on the earth, while one of them might be to educate, there is more to life than that. No, I absolutely agree with you. And I think a lot of teachers in particular I speak to, particularly the ones who've got their own families, they're able to create a bit more of a work-life balance. But it's the, dare I say, you know, the young single ones, the, the newbies, the young ones who are fresh into the teaching profession, they, they are spending <laughs> virtually every hour. I think over the summer, I put a tweet out about when I did my NQT four years ago, um, I spent the entire summer in the school marking and planning, you know, getting things ready, um, doing displays, painting classroom walls laying down floor tiles by the time october half term came i was burnt out i was finished and right. if i look back at it now did i need to do those things yeah i had the most beautiful looking classroom but was i well at the end of it no if anything you know it, it became a job and not a vocation and i think so many of us are keen to avoid it becoming a voc becoming a job and staying as a vocation the only way we can do that is having that separation between the spheres yeah, I think so. If you're going to be a teacher, you have to love it. Mm. You have to love it because you are there working with young people. Um, you, you know, depending on your subject, I see some of my classes four or five times a week. And you are a key figure in those kids' lives. You need to be positive and healthy and they need to see that you are, yes, you're a teacher. You're there, you're delivering curriculum, you're sharing knowledge with them. But you're also a role model of what an adult looks like. Absolutely. You are a role model of what an adult looks like. And that is a serious responsibility. You are there to model what adult health looks like, what adult well-being looks like, what adult success looks like and happiness, especially if you are teaching children who come from home lives where some of their adults don't do that successfully. Yep. Those things are really important there is an alternative to the life that you have and education is the key mm. and I, I i feel like a walking cliche whenever i say that i really do <laughs> i really do um i do think education is the key i really <laughs> i really do i mean look i'm back at uni how many times have i been i can't remember um fourth or fifth time now um but i've for me personally, education is the key to happiness and overall well-being and health. Now I know that is not, it's not completely true for everybody. Not everybody is academic. However, there are certain qualifications, and as an English teacher, I feel this particularly strongly, that unlock the world to you. If you've got your English GCSE, the world opens you, you know, opens up to you. It opens its arms to you. You want to go and do a plumbing course at college? Have you got your pass in English? Cool, come in. Have you not got your pass in English? Sorry, you've got to do that first. So I feel that education is the key. And I know that I teach a core subject and I feel a massive sense of responsibility because of that. Um, I think it's hugely, hugely important. Literacy generally is hugely important. Um, yeah, it started off with teacher well-being, the fact that we're role models, to me, getting on my soapbox and talking about well, wine. Absolutely, <laughs> I, remember, 
you get to know you as an educator and you get a real flavor of sort of like the background that you come from and everything and your perspective on things teacher well-being is a very interesting uh it's a very interesting thing so uh not too long ago i won or a couple of years ago i won colleague of the term i kept voting mm. for myself that's how i won it i'm not gonna lie to you i continue to vote for myself and i, I did win it and uh, you know i'm a member of staff and someone gave me a bottle of chardonnay and uh I was very confused. I was thinking, you know what? Maybe I'd win like a Rolls Royce. So I was being, I thought, you know, something really nice I'd win. And it's a bottle of wine. I was like, All right, fair enough, you know, I, I can't drink it. So I just gave it to one of the cleaners. But even that consciousness, that cultural sensitivity, knowing your staff, knowing that if I, if we get something for well-being, it needs to be you know, representative. It needs to be something that everyone yeah. can access and have. I remember um, one of our members of staff. He was in a wheelchair. It's a good two or three years ago, and he won colleague of the term or colleague of the year, whatever it was. And his, um, he couldn't access the hall because there wasn't wheelchair access into the hall. So he won it. He stood in the fire exit, which I thought was a, a real, like, um, a, a damning indictment of where the school was at the time in terms of its inclusion, diversity, etc. And I, and I always remember thinking back, how must he have felt? How must how, how demoralized must he have felt the fact that he couldn't access the main hall of the school or access wasn't made available to him? Surely that's better than winning a bottle of wine. That's my opinion anyway. So I think pitching it at people in a sensitive way is really important. So well-being is not a one-size-fits-all sort of approach. It's also, it's not a bottle of wine mm. and it's not a spa afternoon and it's not arts and crafts on an inset day. Mm. It is not a plaster for all of the cuts that you've picked up in the term it's doing what you can to prevent the cuts and it's doing what you can to protect your colleagues and help your colleagues and sometimes teacher well-being is walking in to the english office or to the staff room on a really tough day and somebody saying to you you know what you look like you're having a difficult day what can i do to help right now yeah. i was talking to a friend last night we teach at different schools and um she's an un qualified English teacher doing her English um, degree because she wants to become a qualified English teacher wow. which I the most amazing thing in the world right so she's an unqualified English teacher unqualified scale still pretty much a full timetable she is a phenomenal woman um, she's doing her English degree in her spare time she had a an assignment due and she had felt that the workload had been unsustainable I mean Things are difficult for qualified teachers at the moment. She's unqualified and doing an undergraduate degree and she's a mum. So she has a lot on her plate. She had an assignment due at noon and she hadn't finished. One of her colleagues took a look at her and said, you know, you, you're not looking good today. What's up? And can I help? And between themselves using their free lessons, colleagues covered for her so that she could finish her assignment that's where it should be and that i think that is teacher well-being stepping in and protecting each other and helping each other when it really matters if the marking workload is too much sometimes leadership saying you have a particularly heavy marking workload we're going to give you an afternoon off this week to help with your marking workload or you're not going to be put in to invigilate for the exam so that you can use that time to do your marking. Um, I've been really fortunate to work in schools where those systems have been put in place. And I think that I'm, I'm lucky that I've seen it because if you haven't seen things that have been put in place to protect people and their well-being, sometimes 
you get tunnel vision and you feel like this is really hard and I can't see a way out. Mm. Um, so when somebody puts their hand out to you and says, let me help you, I think that's it for me anyway. The well-being is let me help you. It is, absolutely. Job. It can be long hours um, and sometimes it can be thankless, particularly with the attacking narrative in the general media. That can be really hard when you've had a really tough day at school and you see in the papers teachers are being branded as lazy and they don't work hard enough and they're overpaid and they were on full pay throughout lockdown and not working. Those narratives can be very they can be very difficult um to stomach so when your colleagues say let me help you that that i think is what well-being is in my experience no i totally agree with you i def- definitely think it's people stepping in when they realize a crisis is happening or before a crisis absolutely yeah um and i think it, it, a lot of that really manifests top down from senior leadership who take well-being seriously and don't make it a one-off event um, um i think What's happened is the the idea itself became a hashtag really quickly and then mm. everything became about teacher well-being. So people were, you know, having curry nights together and that was well-being and they were doing, you know, after school ping pong and things like that or, you know, and, and basketball and netball and that would become the whole well-being sort of veneer that everyone operated by. I think changing that gaze and realising that we have got a workload problem is very serious the workload problem in education full stop is very serious. You know, my own workload, like I said to you before we started as well, I'm just trying to cope with my lessons and nothing else. Whatever goes on in the world, I pick you up at 4.30 when I leave the building. Before that, whilst I'm there from 7.30 to 4.30, I just focus on my job that day. Nothing more and nothing less. Doing my duties, doing my registers, you know, my safeguarding, everything else we do around there, just the job that we do ourselves. So I think you're right. Wellbeing needs to be, you know, embedded into day-to-day interactions as well. And, I think we talk about kindness as well and how it's been kind of like, and it's kind of full circle how kindness has existed in Britain. So when Caroline Flack passed away and kindness became mm. the, the ultimate thing, you know, if you could be anything in the world, be kind. And you know, people were throwing kindness around like confetti, weren't they, at one stage in January? You know, come, you know, December now, we're, you know, approaching, you know, how many deaths from COVID and, and the way teachers are being treated as well. It's a, it's a dark time. If anything, you know, we should be reverting back to that January sort of like enthusiasm about kindness and re-embedding into our interactions. I agree with you. I do agree with you. But I do not think kindness should be radical. Mm. I do not think kindness should be radical. Uh, for me, it is a basic expectation yes. that human interactions are going to be kind. I want my colleagues to be kind. I want to be kind to my colleagues and I want my children, my students, I want them to see that I'm kind and I'm kind to them and that there is a culture of kindness that it is normal. You know, this idea, this be kind being a hashtag on the internet that suggests that being kind is somehow radical, that that's some kind of activism in itself. That's wrong. That is wrong that we need that. That there is a serious imbalance if we need to remind each other to be kind. I mean, I feel like that's really callous me saying that. I don't mean to be callous. I just, I'm disappointed. I am disappointed that we have to promote it like that on social media, that it has to trend on Twitter and Instagram, that people die um, at like 
this this altar so that there's there's this shared collective responsibility for kindness i agree with you that that really that is the foundation isn't it be kind let me help you what can i do for you i've got your back we're professionals together we're a unit yep i think that sense of unity is really important as well where you have any kind of really deep-seated division there are problems and there are tensions um that being a team is so important for for us as professionals but also for the children when i've worked on teams where the staff are they're you know they're they're gelled and they move together um and there's that sense of cohesion and consistency the the kids respect all of the professionals in the same way and they behave in the same way where the children feel that there is a division or that there are teachers that don't support other teachers they can smell it they know they know mm. and that's when you start to get problems with behavior as well because there's a lack of consistency and there's this sense that the, the teachers are not supporting one another mm. and the student body becomes aware of it and it becomes part of the fabric of the school and I think from the things that I've seen in my very short teaching career of um, seven going on to eight years I think that's where you get your biggest problems and trying to shift that on the staff body takes real real skill and hard work and very experienced leaders i've seen it done once um, in one of the four schools that i've worked in and trying to shift the culture of a school extremely difficult once the damage has been done absolutely absolutely and you're right what you say about children picking up on things you know uh children see through bs quite well actually to be fair you know, <laughs> yeah. you know they these 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 young puppies man they know what's real they know what's fake and you know, they often pull me over they go, can't don't say it like that i'm like right, cool fine i'll change how i speak and whatnot i change the sort of language i use but they are so black and white and it's the small things i think me and oliver uh, oliver wright spoke about it. oliver slt you know i know he's, i know he's listening he always listens to the podcast as well he spoke, spoke about People leaving a tray of glues in your glue sticks in your classroom, the way they're left, they could be tossed onto a table or gently placed with a smile. Children pick up on that and they know. I've worked in an environment where my line manager used to um, very openly give me very uh, demeaning looks. And the children used to pick up on that. Oh, why why is she looking at you like that? I'm like, oh, no, no, no problem. We're cool. But they knew something was up. And eventually, by the time I actually spoke to this person, the rapport had kind of already been broken and lost. We lost, it, you know, a lot was lost in translation with that. But you're right. Kindness doesn't need to be a radical out there, you know, uh, populist thing. If you can't be kind to someone, leave them alone. Wouldn't that just be fine? You know, just, yeah. I think it kind of links to what we're talking about, trauma dumping. I know we started talking about that, but it kind of links yeah. to so, Yeah. Uh, so Rosie, okay, we've got a couple more questions here for you, okay? I'm just conscious of time as well. Um, what has been your proudest moment as a teacher so far? Oh, I, th- I thought... If you could choose one. <laughs> my my answer's really cheesy. Um, I just, I'm proud every day. I'm proud every day for different reasons. Um, 
I'm proud when I mark a piece of work and a student has made brilliant progress or they've listened to some of the feedback they were given. Um, I think like feelings of immense pride in myself as a teacher are usually when a child picks English at A-level because then it's a choice. And that, that for me, I feel like I've won because up until the end of GCSE, English is compulsory. Mm. And when a child chooses English and they've been in my class, I feel like a winner. Um, and yeah, teaching A-level, I, I love it. It's one of my, the highlights of my week. Um, if a child then goes on to do English at university, you can bet I'm going to cry. Um, <laughs> when children tell me or young adults tell me in my A-level class they've applied to do English at uni, I actually get a bit teary because I feel like I have done my job. I feel like I have delivered the curriculum in such a way that they've been engaged and that they've loved it. Um, so, yeah, and on, you know, results days because not because of what the grade stands for, but because the fact that it's a passport onto the next stage. Yep. If you've got your pass and you're going to go on to be a mechanic and that's your dream and you needed English to get there and I helped you get there, I feel so good about that, you know? So if I've opened doors, I'm proud. Um, that's when I feel like I'm, I was put on the earth to do this and I've done it. And in one way or another, I've supported you to go and change the world in your your own way and yeah so that's what i see my role as ultimately you're right absolutely we're here to raise you know the next generation of citizens to be socially aware you know conscious of our you know our the inequalities of our society you know aware of the damage of the climate you know small things like that just being sensible respectable citizens citizens for our society and we do that through our interactions with them and like you say we model behaviors you know what yeah. they see from us is you know what they will probably go out and them, you know model it themselves in the future you, sometimes you know it can be one class i was very fortunate in my nqt i had one class who it just clicked from the moment i walked in there it, and they were all boys and it was like a they used to talk about football for half an hour and then we teach for half an hour, that sort of thing. We used to have two hour lessons together, back to back. It was RE mm. and some class, it just clicks. And I was just constantly proud of walking in there and seeing how respectful they were to each other, not just yeah. to me. They'd hand each other books out. This is a class who'd put each other in the headlocks at the beginning of the year. <laughs> Towards the end of the year, they were opening doors for one another. And there was such a sense of kindness in the classroom and that just come from interactions that we had with them. And you're right. I think, you know, the small things that we do, you know, they, they have an impact. And, you know, we as teachers, we should be proud of going into work every single day. It shouldn't be a burden. It should be a blessing. No, there's so much that's lovely about it. You know, it's small things like sometimes when you're in your classroom and you see the kids arriving in the morning and somebody drops a bit of litter and then they pick it up. I feel proud yep. because nobody is looking. And one of my favorite things is, um, you know, people say the definition of integrity is what you do when no one's watching. Yes. Yes. I've had that quote. I feel like if my students have integrity and they don't know I've seen it, but they've shown a kindness mm. or they've done the right thing, whether that's protecting the planet or looking after a friend or if my students have integrity, I, that is actually the most important thing for me. That is the most important thing for me. If my students are good human beings and I had a part to play in that, um, 
I would go as far as to say that's more important than any qualification that I can teach them. No. You can go back and you can do the GCSEs again. Not that I want you to, and it will be hard for you. Mm. But if you are a good human being and people are kind to you and you are kind to them and you have support, you can go on to do anything. If you are an abhorrent person and nobody wants you to do well and you don't have the support, good luck getting anywhere. Mm. So, no, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So they, it's about fostering that sort of culture within your classroom to say, not only that they can achieve, but also you're looking out for the more holistic pastoral side to them as well, rather than just, you know, they come in, take a registry, start teaching. You want to know how they are. You want to know how they're doing as well as what they're doing as well. Yeah, look, they are the future leaders. Mm. They are the future leaders. One of us is teaching the next prime minister. Hopefully, we yeah. Ho hopefully, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> We don't know who is, but someone is. Someone's teaching the next prime minister. Someone's teaching a brilliant surgeon or somebody who's going to go on to be a professor at a university. Somebody's teaching a generation of teachers mm. and they're going to go on to share their values. Um, I think that responsibility cannot be underplayed. We are integral figures in that respect. We are role models. We are there every day. Um, come rain or shine during the good the bad and the ugly mm. we're there and the students see us so if they remember that you were kind and that you tried your best and that you made them feel safe and secure and they learned when they were with you that's that's what it's all about isn't it and there's a special kind of magic when you have those days and those lessons where all of those components are there it's magical there's nothing like it no, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, really brings me back to my NQT, actually. Yeah. We used to have, uh, particularly in that year, where because it started off such a difficult class, so challenging with their behavior, and it took a lot of time initially to start. It, click, it did click initially straight away, but it took a lot of time to just embed the small things, the sort of like, you know, this classroom routines. And once you become a consistent figure in their lives, you can see how their how behavior changed. They know what to expect, you know, and it's the lack of consistency they may have at home or in society full stop, especially with this pandemic, no one knows what's going on. School is there, it's our safe place as well as their safe place as well. Do you know, <laughs> I'm gonna be honest, I think that maybe my students might think I'm extreme, um, particularly when I take on a new year 10 class. By the time they get to year 11, they're so well trained, they already know. Mm -hmm. But with the year 10 group, I learned this from um, a teacher that taught my brother. So I, started to work at the school my brother was at when he was in year 13 so it was really interesting oh wow that must have been yeah that must have been something yeah, yeah they they knew who I was as a teacher because we were in the same borough um but my brother's a very different character to me I think it's fair to say that I don't think he would disagree at all okay um, he's not academic and the school were aware of that and they were trying to get him over the line with his A-levels. And I am really quite academic and I like book smart. Um, and so we're very, very different. And when I got there, somebody actually said to me, I hope you're not going to be anything like your brother. And um, oh, wow. <laughs> I said, I hope it reassures you that I'm not. Uh, and then I kind of had to work harder, I felt, to prove myself to the general staff body that we were not the same. Mm. Um, but anyway, that's an aside. 
so I was I was working there and I've forgotten what I was saying what was the question um right I I met one of his history teachers and this guy is a legend at the school he has been there for so long he has taught sons fathers brothers cousins friends neighbors he's taught history to the entire community okay he's really well known um and I said to him you know like what's your secret and he said to me it's routines and one of the things that he does is he gets the kids to number the pages in their exercise books and to create a contents page at the front of the book and I asked him to show me because I was completely fascinated by this first time I'd ever heard it he's Irish and he said look I'm old school but I promise you this works so he showed me and he gets every child to number the pages of their exercise book and on the front there's a contents page and the contents page includes date the page number of the exercise book the title of the work and um, I asked him to show me how it works and I loved it so much because I am a neat freak uh, so now that's something that I do as part of the routines that I have in place so when the students come into the room first thing they do when they write down the title learning objective they check the page number and they fill out their contents page and it really helps with stuff like homework because when I say can you please make sure your homework is in the contents page I don't have to search for it anymore I can check the contents page my homework's on page 18 I find it and I can mark it really easily um that's a really like genius smart old school hack <laughs> really smart yeah, I, don't think I just learned so much from this guy. And um, the wow. great thing was obviously like he taught my brother. So I had heard, I, I like, I knew the myth before the man because my brother would come home and say, you won't believe what he did today. And um, I'd heard all of these outlandish stories about him. He is a very eccentric. Um, and when he taught me that, I have done it ever since. And it's really funny because now all of my students who I have taught meet my incoming cohort will say you know she'll get you to write down the page number on every page and some of them come in and they they almost look like scared and like oh are you going to get me to write down the page numbers in my book and i say yeah we're going to write down the page numbers in your book so I, I suppose it's like the legend continued but it is almost it's theatrical it's not necessarily a completely um important thing but it is one of the structures that I have and they know it, it's familiar. Yeah. If I missed a lesson and they've got cover work, they've put pages 32 to 35 is cover work. Mm -hmm. And it kind of, it allows this sense of, I know what's coming. Mm -hmm. The title and the learning objective are gonna be on the board. The date's gonna be on the board. She's gonna give me three minutes to write those things down. Mm -hmm. And then I have to fill out my contents page and then we will begin. So it's just coming back to the idea of safety and routines. I do think they're really important. I think safety routines and relationships mm. are integral to yeah, successful student teacher relationships. And once you've got the relationship down and they feel safe with you, then they can learn. No, you're absolutely right. One thing I love about that routine is tried and tested. It's been passed on by generations and the fact yeah. that you adapted it, it's, you've seen it. This is one thing I love about when teachers observe other teachers. 
you've seen what's worked in someone else's car it's actually worked you've seen it you can now adapt it rather than it be something the school roll out as a policy we're doing this and that's the end of it if you've seen it physically working in demonstration and someone's made success out of it you adapt it to your practice you're like damn that was really good and the legacy gets passed on and carried on and and then it becomes a routine so that that's how that's how we that's how we teach you know we we you know we model other people's practice in our own teaching i pay homage to mr lewis who used to say <laughs> comedy first teaching second and i've kind of operated that way you know dan you know my motto is you know i'm here for a good time not a long time and that's what he lived by as well so it's really important that we, we, we can adapt. That's a really good smart hack. If you're listening, if you're an NQT listening, you, know, uh, you should copyright that. I think you should copyright that. <laughs> your textbooks, you have content that. pages, you know, <laughs> content. But it's a very smart idea, actually. I really do like that. I, that. That's what teaching is, right? You've got the mentor and the mentee. I mean, I was a qualified teacher at the point at which I moved to that school. But I always feel that I'm learning from my colleagues whether they're more or less experienced than me. But I have to say, um, I came into teaching at a time where we, the retention crisis had kind of really taken hold of the profession and um, more experienced members of staff were leaving. Um, and I just felt that I was learning so much from them. And do you know what, on the subject of kindness, they are the kindest human beings on the planet. Some of them watched me fall over onto my backside and didn't laugh. You know, I, cause I was so exhausted. My foot just went and I had a big box of books. They all skidded. Oh, wow. oh. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And my glasses came off my face and skidded across the floor. That was the force with which I hit the ground. Oh wow. That, must have been yeah. It must've been awful. Yeah. <laughs> I've embarrassed myself a lot. I'm not going to lie. I've embarrassed myself a lot as a teacher. I've done things like managed to lock myself in the toilets um, and be late oh, to a lesson. That's happened to me. That's happened to me on purpose. Or I don't think I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've set off the fire alarm by straightening my hair in the ladies' toilets. The entire school had oh. to line up outside in the rain. That must have been like, quite embarrassing. Um, all students, all staff, non-teaching staff as well um because i singed my hair so i went outside and i was really embarrassed i kind of sidled up to the head teacher and i said um because they didn't know what the cause was they kind of they went back to like i don't know if it's the main switchboard or whatever it is they could identify that it was it had been set off in the ladies toilets but they had no idea why there was a fire in the ladies toilets um so i had to go and say to the teacher i'm really sorry i like to operate on honesty so i'm just going to tell you that mm. i burnt my hair in the ladies toilets and i set off the fire alarm uh, i got a special mention in briefing that week because i was given thanks for leading on the um the fire drill which was due to take place that half term so they kind of they took what i had done and used it as a fire drill but that was embarrassing so yeah experienced colleagues and the kindness that they're willing to show trainees cannot be undervalued absolutely are you shout out to our staff our members of staff who are on tlrs and ups they don't get the respect they deserve many of them <laughs> really have to continue justifying their existence you know massive shout out to you guys and massive shout out to Gemma Waite look after me during my NQT yeah she was 
uh, trying, she's uh, going for promotion after promotion. She's on upper UPS and uh, she just put her arm around me. Honestly, Rosie, she put her arm around me, say to me, Shreb, this is how we do it. You know, don't forget this deadline. It was a small, like, mothering things, the little details, you know. I'd walk in late some morning, she goes, Shreb, don't worry. I've, you know, I'll, I'll put your computer on for you, etc. cetera. Uh, it was a small things. Our, I, our staff on UPS, you know, our experienced teachers, you know, deserve a lot of respect. I'm in my fifth year. I don't consider myself as the most experienced. I'm not. But, you know, our experienced teachers deserve so much more respect than, than, than they receive at times. Yeah, I, no, I agree. My mentor, when I was training, um, I don't, I didn't realise how obvious it was that I was struggling, put it that way. And um, I came in one day and there was a card in my pigeonhole with a chocolate bar. And the card said, you're doing great, keep it up. And I read it and I burst into tears um, because she had recognized that it was really tough and I was trying really hard. And she was a brilliant mentor to me. She was always incredibly, incredibly kind um, to everybody. And I'm, I really think that I'm lucky that I had her as a mentor. She's made me the teacher I am, definitely. I'm still friends with her today. She is a true professional in every aspect of the word. And yeah, she was an experienced member of staff. So I have so much, so much to thank uh, the teachers who taught me those, like those tricks. They definitely made me who I am. Um, I've been just really lucky to work with some brilliant people. I think yeah myself as well included to be fair I've, I've I've been very fortunate to even like connect with many fantastic educators as well whether it's through social media it's open um, through zoom podcasting etc writing blogs I think it's uh, everyone's got a library of knowledge we can tamper into and we can walk into and, and gain things out and learn things out we're always on a, lear a constant learning journey I remember I observed a teacher once during my NQT he used to have an overhead projector remember them overhead projectors those yeah white one he used to he used to teach from that he's a maths teacher Mr Smith he's retired now bless him and I remember he used to wheel it around the school he used to make a real like wheel really annoying squeak the wheel was like it needed oiling or something and he'd wheel it around the school and that was his teaching and learning toolbox nothing else he didn't have a planner he just had his overhead projector and he taught maths he bossed results he was incredible and I just learned so much because he knew the students. He'd pitch questions at them, like you know, grade eight or grade nine questions, knew them off the top of his head and students would write them down. His marking was fantastic as well, but he refused to do PowerPoint. He refused to do computers. And you know, those mavericks, those people, they still bring a smile to my face. They do exist. There's less and less of them out there, but um, you know, there are some incredibly experienced teachers who we can pick little nuggets of information out of and adapt them into our practice. And not only that, just appreciate their brilliance. Yeah, I, know, I do. I mean, I'm, I'm all for the maverick and the underdog. Uh, there's a part of me that really respects like that rebellious streak. And I think that actually quite a lot of teachers have it. Um, definitely the ones, maybe, the, maybe there are lots of them in English departments for sure. But uh, <laughs> I've definitely worked with lots of teachers who have a wicked sense of humour. And who are rule breakers and revolutionaries in one way or another. They're pioneering new things or, you know, using strategies that they know work that are really old school and modernizing them. Um, it's a great job in that respect because it's been, 
it's been done forever mm. and like there's this like really long lineage of what it means to teach and what it means to learn um yeah and we're part of that which is great no i definitely agree with you i definitely definitely agree with you all right i'm just conscious of time okay but i've got one yeah. really big question for you i have to ask everyone okay you've been bracing yourself with this question okay i know the audience <laughs> well, okay what we're approaching christmas time okay yeah it's on your playlist oh christmas is michael buble for sure I was listening to E17 this morning just for the sake of it. So I'm, <laughs> I'm not really a Christmas like song person, like, but I thought I'd give them a go today. Um, my usual go-to, I mean, I grew up on like Jennifer Lopez and Craig David. I love Craig David, early Craig David. Shout out to Carl Poupe again, action hero teacher. Not the, not the current Craig David, the, the weird henchman. He's not, I mean, like the early 2000s. Is that the right one? Yeah. Born to do it and things like that. Yes, yes. Well, we were um, we were living in Cyprus at the time, and my mum came to the UK to see her dad. He hadn't been very well, and this is back when Woolworths existed. Oh she wow, did- the pick a mix! Remember those days? Yeah, those are the days. You know, the kids don't know. The kids don't know what they're missing. And yeah, she came back with like CDs from Craig David and Jennifer Lopez, and I remember having Britney Spears and Billy Piper. On repeat. <laughs> Billy Piper's cool. I like, and what was she doing with Lawrence Fox? Goodness. Listen, Billy, you're probably listening to this. You're probably not. But even if you are, yeah. What, what, what happened? What's happened to him? I'm sorry. I just need to say that. I'm sorry. Uh, you were saying, Rosie, who else have you got on your playlist? Yeah, so I like, I swing between that. But when I'm, when I'm writing, I like to listen to jazz. Okay. Okay, yeah, that, 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 um, so it's an eclectic mix. Okay, that is an eclectic mix. When I, when I, write, <laughs> I listen to like Cleopatra and like, uh, you know, Top Loader and, 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 and anything 90s, early 2000s, that's a very nostalgic time. I didn't, I was yeah. quite young at the time during that period, but it's just life was so much simple. Like, you'd come <laughs> over and you'd watch like Rush Hour, you know, yeah. and things like that, and Ready Steady Cook. Uh, and you know Keenan and Keller were on TV and things like that. Those are the yeah. good, those are innocent days. I think uh, <laughs> those are the really really good times. No, no, Rose has been absolutely fantastic having you on Anti Small Talk. Rosie, do you have a blog? Where can our uh, where can our uh, listeners find you? Blog, website, Instagram, plug as you uh, as you wish. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at edufeminist. Um, my presence is really quite low key. If you want to find me on Instagram. It's Rosie's Feminist PhD, where I'm really kind of logging, cataloging, archiving the feminist content that I'm going to be looking at in my research. Um, so, yeah, but Twitter is really the place where I'm responding and engaging. Instagram is definitely an archiving project, but by all means, please come and join me, contribute. I'd be more than happy to see you there. No, absolutely. Everyone listening, this is a fantastic educator, a wonderful, wonderful human being and just a very genuine person. We used the word kindness a lot today. When I first had st- struck up a conversation, I thought there's someone we need to have on the podcast and a voice that deserves to be elevated in education in our massive echo chamber. You know, we've got to try, try and provide our, you know, our authentic voice and opportunity to have a seat at the table. But honestly, it's been absolutely incredible, Rosie. And I'm almost certain it's going to happen again at some stage when you're yeah. ready to launch, you know, and anti-small talks hitting like millions and millions of views we can have you back on there absolutely i would really love that no thank you so much for your time though you too thank you thank you
Hello everyone, this is Shweb Khan here at Anti-Small Talk and today is our ninth episode in our Heroes Without Capes Voices from Within the Classroom podcast series. Over the past six or seven, eight weeks, we've been talking to our nation's educators about their views on education, getting an understanding of their stories, things they love, things they don't necessarily love, things they found challenging during the course of this global pandemic. Today I'm delighted to announce we have the wonderful Rosie Georgiou, who tweets at EduFeminist, talking to us about her experiences, her inspirations and her incredible PhD work. Hello Rosie and welcome to Anti-Small Talk. Hello, thank you for having me. No, it's really, really exciting. Um, I think I come across your Twitter handle at one stage. I thought, who is EduFeminist? And I've got to have this yeah. on some stage. So uh, that's our first question, actually, okay? Who is the EduFeminist? Okay, um, well, so I guess if I go by the identity on the Twitter handle, that is my teaching Twitter. Um, and they're the two things that are really important to me, education and feminism. Um, and for a while, I think that I thought they were separate. Um, so my original handle ne- didn't have anything to do with my feminism or my politics. And it was originally Rosie Outlook 305. Mm. So when I first started as a trainee, I was really excited about everything. And I felt that I had quite a rosy outlook on education. Um, and as time went on and I've gone on and done things like my master's and now my PhD, I've realized how important my feminism actually is to me as a person and to my identity in general. So that's why my Twitter handle is edufeminist because I'm an educator and I'm a feminist and I think they are really the two core strands of my identity. Absolutely, absolutely. That's, that's really cool because I'd consider myself as a feminist, not necessarily an active one, but, uh, and this is gonna sound like a really strange question, I kind of off topic, okay? Um, out of the three, like there's different strands of feminism, okay? Is there one in particular that you prefer or would generally associate yourself more than others? Or do you think as it was a general thing that you just want to endorse? Do you mean the, like the three waves of feminism? Yes, yes. Okay, I, do you know what? This is one of my favourite questions because we're actually in the fourth wave. We are actually in the fourth wave, the whole social media technical, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're actually in the fourth wave. And so I consider myself a fourth wave feminist. Um, One of my favourite things about fourth wave feminism is that it is not happy with the work that the previous three waves have done. So women have achieved amazing things. We've got the vote. Um, You know, women are working and we're working towards closing the gender pay gap and women are having children are campaigning for flexible work. So there are lots of brilliant things that have happened. But there are some things that fourth wave feminism really points the finger at previous waves and says, that's not good enough. So one of the key facets is that it's intersectional um, and that feminism until the 90s really did not represent enough women. It was only serving a particular demographic. So third wave and fourth wave feminism are really campaigning for intersectional feminism and equality across all kinds of people from all walks of life so that's why i identify as a fourth waiver because i think although we've achieved great things there's a lot more to be done um particularly in representing lots of different kinds of women and femininity and also campaigning for men and masculinity because feminism doesn't just serve women and i think it's really important that we remember that there are lots of issues with toxic masculinity absolutely 
really don't get spoken about enough in public forums and feminists are doing the work for men um and i think that that's something that's important as well no you're absolutely correct and i think you're right i think the sentiment i always get with fourth wave feminists is that progress kind of it needs to carry on it's not it's it's an endless uh uh, model towards a movement and a vehicle towards social change and it's going to happen through you know innovating changing and adopting that intersectional design you're absolutely right i was watching was it ross kemp on gangs or something and he was in somewhere like columbia and there was um you know uh ladies there working there in the fields uh um picking um i think it was coffee i think they were picking and uh it, it played in the back of my mind thinking that we've had great success here in the uk but that level of success for women across in other countries women of color you know uh, mm. even our um lgbtq plus community how we can adapt that in there it's really really important that we branch out and we bring everyone and i think it's really boils down to the idea of it's equality for everyone or it's equality for no one so it's yeah. uh, and also recognizing privilege i think this is what 2020 has kind of been about leading 2021 so recognizing our privileges as you know white people asian people uh, even with our genders as well so all these sort of like you know, strands of inequality or equality kind of need to be crossed over first to, to tear apart social structures and, and say, yeah, things are not fair for you because of this, this and this, not just because of one characteristic. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think my favourite thing, probably if I had to sum up fourth wave feminism, I would say it's not enough. Mm. Like, I think that's how fourth wave feminists feel. I mean, I know I'm speaking for a really big group here. <laughs> uh, it's definitely how I feel. The, yeah, this is great, but it's not enough. And I think that it taps into lots of the things that we've seen in 2020 as well, like racism, stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you need to educate yourself. You need to be aware of your own privilege. And in being aware of your own privileges, you need to be aware of the fact that other people do not have that. So having your eyes open, being aware that that is not enough your own lived experience being the only lens that you see the world through is not enough so yeah i think um the other thing i love is that it's online um i love the art being made i think it's fantastic it's a whole postmodern yeah absolutely absolutely abstract art yeah yeah absolutely it's great and it's you know i mean platforms like instagram have really taken a turn in the sense that well, I don't know about you, but when I first got my Instagram account, I was taking photos of my food and like. I didn't get that far. I didn't get that far. No, uh, no, I didn't know. The sunset, you know, like my. I my them, yeah, I've got a few sunset photos. Yeah, yeah, I think some yes. of them. Yeah, yeah. But it was like it was this autobiographical platform, right, where you were sharing your life with your loved ones, and sometimes a wider platform. Whereas now, when you, or maybe because I. I'm part of a feminist echo chamber on there. So I do need to be mindful of that. But when I log onto that platform, I see a lot of content that's been made particularly for the platform. So some amazing activism by body positive influencers and illustrators and content creators. People are making digital activist content in the form of artwork and clips and sounds and podcasts and putting stuff up on Instagram as a way of sharing. And I think that kind of that aspect of it can go viral, that potential, the potential for something to go viral, I think is one of the things that's so exciting about the movement. Because when something goes and all of a sudden that engagement increases and your audience explodes, 
and you're reaching people that otherwise you wouldn't reach and then more traditional forms of media start to become engaged in the activism i think that's when it gets really exciting i'll never forget oprah's me too speech hmm. golden globes yes yes i remember that yes yes that was such an amazing moment in history because not only was the speech itself powerful the art that came from that the posters the photos of her the captions um all of the hashtags that come with it as a way of archiving the process mm. i think that's something that i'm also really interested in is how do we archive the content that we've made that is part of our digital activism because mm. once it's published provided you don't delete it it's there forever yeah. i mean and arguably even once it's been deleted it's there forever but mm. i'm not necessarily tech savvy enough to kind of work around that limitation mm. but yeah so that that sense of sharing content that is activist the way in which it's shared and the potential for really big engagement because of the nature of the movement and how it spreads so quickly. I just love it. I think it's so exciting. No, you're right. It becomes a world of its own, doesn't it? Which is really cool. That's what I always find. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Even like when I'm blogging and stuff and even podcasting, you see people in like, I don't know, Afghanistan listening to you thinking, wow, you know, how did it get there? It's insane. It's reached someone else and the, the global outreach of it's enormous as well. Well, it's unlimited potential in that respect. Once you release something, if it resonates, it's got unlimited potential. And I think you realise with that activism that actually you represent people. And that's really important because what we're noticing about social media is that you are able to represent people that on traditional forms of media may feel that they are unrepresented. So therefore, social media creates this platform for the minorities, the marginalized voices, right? Um, That's really cool because all of a sudden it's like a place where you find your tribe Mm. and people think like you do and share your ideas. There's so much about that that's brilliant. I mean, of course, there there are limitations with everything. Mm. Everything has a danger. But... um, I think, yeah, that's why fourth wave feminism excites me so much because it's moved from the page onto what I would consider more of a platform. Yep, yep, Um, absolutely. And it brings with it this whole sort of sense of performance and theatre. And I don't think that feminism was particularly theatrical before now. Mm -hmm. Whereas now that there are people who are taking photographs and they're dressing up um, or dressing down and you've got these body positive influencers who are posing naked, who are campaigning for the fact that they should be able to do that because slimmer people were doing it, not having their content removed, but um, well, essentially fatter people that have put naked photos up, have had their content removed. And then there's been activism around that. Mm. So yeah, I think it's amazing. It's a really reactive movement, Mm. which is cool. Mm. I think it's needed at a time where we do need social change and where, you know, marginalized voices are not being heard. It's uh, it's fascinating. Something I definitely need to be, you know, getting into more and understanding more because if like, I think me and Carl Pupe talked about Action Hero Teacher, shout out to Action Hero Teacher. I know you're going to be listening to this, but me and him talked about if we put our name to a, a particular flag and we say we're going to be inclusion, diversity, we do talk about all strands of that. We can't simply mm. include people. So I've been trying to educate myself more and more on transphobia because a lot of my friends have said to me, sure, I've never heard anyone been transphobic. doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It's definitely out there in the public domain and, and the trans community do feel very targeted. So educating using the right, you know, pronouns and nouns and, 
you know, addressing people with they and, and asking them, you know, what they feel comfortable with, asking them about, and in, 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 a, in a sincere and compassionate way, not in a transactional way. It's, it's a learning curve and a process. And I think we're going to do that by having these conversations. Do you know what? I've got a couple of thoughts on that. One, I don't think it's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I'm not dismissing a big issue, but what I mean is, hello, my name's Rosie. My pronouns are she, her. What's your name and what are your pronouns? I don't think it has to be a particularly difficult conversation to have. I think if you introduce yourself with your name and your pronouns, I, that's a really comfortable way of doing it. And it normalizes it. I have my pronouns on my email sign off at work and on my email sign off on my personal email and on my Twitter handle. Um, I actually think it's really important. So yeah, I do think that, I mean, my brother is gay. So we have conversations about gender, the importance of your identity, feeling seen for who you are, being accepted and loved for who you are, not being dismissed or invisible. Um, So I have a lot to thank him for in the sense that I'm interested in these things as a feminist anyway. I do a lot of reading around gender and pronouns. Um, So maybe I have a natural bias towards that. But I also have those conversations at home with my family but yeah so I, I don't think it should be difficult hello my name's Rosie I go by she her what's your name and we're teaching children with children who are growing up in a world where this is more important than ever before I have I've taught children that are trans- transitioning and they need to feel that they're seen and represented even though I myself am not transitioning and at the don't have any plans to in the future. Um, you know, if that doesn't change, we'll find out. But so I, yeah, I make it, I make it my business to make sure that all children feel that in one way or another, they're represented and respected by me. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the way forward. You know that. And I think that's why we struck up such a, uh, a good conversation to start with. I think we did Zoom before and it lasts like two hours and it was it's a general <laughs> chitchat about inclusion. I can see, you know, how passionate you are about it. Um, but linking into this fourth wave feminism, Rosie. Okay. So in your bio, okay, we spoke about, okay, you're doing a PhD at the Montford. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Can you like shed some light on that? Because I know you're very passionate about the work that you're doing. Okay. And it's very particular. Like, I've never heard of anything like this before. So it's unique. Okay. Would you want to shed some light on that for us, please? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm more than happy to do that. So I am in my first year of my PhD. I wrote my proposal up in the summer. Um, and because I'm in my first year, I'm still very much in the stages of having the project completely approved by the university. I'll have my first review in January. Um, but the proposal at the minute outlines the following. So I will be tracing the shifts in feminist politics and considering the ways in which Chicklet responded to these concerns, if at all, in the 90s. Um, some research has been done on that before. So my original contribution to knowledge will be identifying those gaps with contemporary Chicklet, if it still exists, because there are, Chicklet has been declared dead on many occasions. Um, and then taking all of the findings, so that will form my literature review and the critical component of my research, taking all of the findings as to the relationship between feminist politics and Chicklet and then filling that gap with my own creative writing. So the, the proposal essentially 
outlines that I will pioneer a new feminist chiclet genre, which doesn't exist at the moment. That's ambitious, but really cool, actually, to be fair. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but really cool. When I say it out loud, it's terrifying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when I'm writing, the words come. Mm. Uh, but when I, re you know, when I speak the words out loud and it goes from being something my head to something real that I share with other people, it is, yeah, a very ambitious project and quite scary. But somebody has to do it. Absolutely. That's, that's the truth. That's the truth thing. Before we started, like, to our listeners, before we started this conversation, myself and Rosie were talking about being the first one to say things and sometimes the onus is on us. Sometimes you've got to grab the bull by the horns, don't you, and say, do you know what? I need to say this. Now, I've got an opportunity to say, I'm going to say, or I need to research this. And it needs to be something in yeah. the public domain. So if you're passionate about it, absolutely, yeah. I think it's going to be incredible, you know that. And I, obviously, I'll follow your journey as well along the way, which would be really, really cool as well. So, yeah. Um, so, Rosie, okay, we've got some more questions here for you, okay? Um, yeah. Let's go for some like, general teacher questions, okay, just to get to know you a bit better, okay? So if we walked into your classroom right now, let's say you're teaching at, yeah, because no one teaches at seven o'clock. I'm just saying, <laughs> okay, uh, if let's say we walked into your classroom on a normal day, what would we expect to typically see from your English classroom? Yeah, so yes. I'm an English teacher. Um, I teach year 11, 12 and 13 because I'm part-time to allow me to do my studying. So you will see a very focused exam class. Um, so I teach the exam texts to the GCSE groups. I think I'm a, I'm a firm but fair teacher. Um, I like a calm, focused room. I have very clear routines um, and I like to provide structure for my students. It comes from really feeling that structure is one of the things that my kids need from me. So the schools that I've taught in, for the most part, um, with the exception of a couple of years, serve largely deprived backgrounds um, so I have a lot of underprivileged students and sometimes home life can be very chaotic so what I try to do is to create a really safe structured environment for my kids so that they come in they know exactly what to expect um, to be consistent so that's one of the things that I take very seriously. No routines the routines for learning are very very important because you don't know what's going on at home. You don't know if there are any consistency at home at all. So if you're the only consistent person in their life, dare I say, especially in these deprived schools, I went to, I work myself in a very deprived school as well. If they don't have that level of consistency at home, they can get it at school. And having those clear expectations, routines are really, really important. In terms of behavior management, um, what works for you? Because I know people try loads of different things. Do, uh, is there anything that particularly works for you? People do countdown, people do all sorts of different things. Okay, is there anything that you found particularly good? Because I need some tips because I've got some difficult classes. I'm not lying. This is <laughs> um, well, the, the behavior routines I've used, they have they've depended on the school that I'm in and the culture of the school at the, at the moment, the school that I'm in has um, a really big focus on every teacher being consistent with school policy. So some of the policies that we use are countdown five, four, three, two, one students respond really well to it because all teachers are using it. Um, so I make sure that I use what other teachers are using because it's really effective in that school. One of the things that I would say is a, behavior tool that lots of people don't talk about is marking the books um i know my kids inside out I mark their books um i'm really hot on that not everybody is and marking is quite unfashionable 
at the moment. It's fallen out of fashion. Um, and I, I, hate so I, wear... I, hate I hate it to be honest with you. I hate marketing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's boring. Do you but... know what? I realised how powerful marking was in my training year because I was doing Teach First. I had a year 11 group. They were a set two. And I think we'd got to the October half term and I hadn't looked at the books. I was busy surviving. Mm. I was busy surviving. And um, one day one of the students said to me, Miss, are you ever going to look at our books? And I had a bit of a reality check mm. because my mentor then said, we really need to look at the books. Um, and I, once I started to mark their work and I knew what their strengths were and I learned the students from their work, I, I transformed as a teacher. Um, I was then marking that year 11 groups work every week. So they would do exam practice on a Friday period five because English was timetabled in at Friday period five. I think that is a terrible timetabling mistake. And if anybody that timetables is listening, I would advise that core subjects are never timetabled in on a Friday period five. I would get your 11 to do PE or an option subject. I agree. <laughs> or food tech or art. Yep, absolutely. So I had a Friday period five with my set two year 11 and I gave them exam practice every week. Um, they were a big group. There were 32 of them. And I will be honest and say that marking their work at first was difficult. Mm. I got very quick at it. Um, so yeah, the long answer to your question is I do mark as a behavior management tool mm. because I know the students really well. I know what they're good at. It allows me to have personal conversations with them. Um, I'm not advocating for a ridiculous teacher workload. I don't believe in that at all. But I think marking where it matters yeah. And that's what's important. Yeah. Marking where it matters is key. And for me, exam groups are really, really important. And those students went on to make incredible progress. I had a boy in that group. They were all boys. But this particular boy was working an E when I first marked his work in the October. And um, I wasn't sure of my marking. So I asked the head of English to moderate me. And she said, no, he's working at an E grade. Anyway, the end of the year, he came out with two Bs. That's incredible. Mum bought me a massive bottle of perfume and a bottle of wine. Oh, that's incredible. That's really, really yeah, cool. I did it, but it was nice. Mm. So, yeah, I think, and I always do that with my exam groups. I like to know them really well. Mm. I think right. knowing how they write, I teach sociology and RE, so understanding how they analyse text and use their sources as well is really, really important. Um, it's very, I think the issue I think teachers find in marking is, especially when it's purposeless, and we do get purposeless marking at times where, you know, you, there's a school that I worked at where you'd have a different color pen for each year group. Mm. And you'd, you'd stick in this sheet and this colored sheet. And it's not going to empirical data behind it or reasoning behind it. It's not been mandated or validated everywhere. So anywhere, any, any of the country, any of the school. So it can be add to workload. But if you're with the key exam groups, like I teach a key exam group as well, having that dialogue with their work is important. You get to know them. And I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. It's got to have a purpose. It's got to be meaningful and impactful and progress. Otherwise we're doing it for the sake of it. And it shouldn't be, the, and it shouldn't be like teaching for the sake of marking as well. It should be teaching for the sake of teaching and assessing to assess for progress. That sort of thing. I don't think anything in teaching should be for the sake of anything. Mm. If it is not in the best interest of the kids mm. that are in front of you, you shouldn't be doing it. That's how I feel. I think everything should be 
really purposeful. And I think if something is really purposeful, then you get buy-in. I don't think it's hard to get buy-in from teachers because teachers want the kids to do well. I think when you reach those obstacles is where teachers as professionals are starting to question, but why are we doing this? Is this additional workload for the sake of workload and for busy work? Or is it in the best interest of the kids? Because all of the teachers that I know, um, I know some really respectable professionals, always want to do what's right by the kids. You know, I've worked with people that would go in on a Saturday morning every week for months, um, unpaid without question, because it was the only way to get, this is back when we did coursework, it was the only way to get those kids over the line. It was not requested by the school. It wasn't even encouraged by the school, but that particular teacher had a group that really needed extra intervention, no additional time to do it, rang parents and said, I really want to support your child. I'm going to come in on Saturday between nine and 12, and I'm going to do it from December through till February. Um, this is time that I'm willing to give. Please send your son. And the kids responded really well to it. The workload shouldn't have been so that she had to do that. Mm. And I acknowledge that and I'm not promoting it. But what I'm saying is all of the teachers that I've worked with and especially the ones that I've respected, they always want to do right by the kids and getting buy-in on that has never been hard in my experience. Mm. The thing that starts to get resistance where teachers are saying, I'm not convinced that that strategy is going to work or be effective or is actually in the best interest of the kids. That's when teachers start to question things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And people start pulling in different directions. I think uh, when I worked in schools as well, and we've had, you know, marking policies introduced, I like to know where they've come from. I like to know, you know, where has it been successful? Can we go to this school or this institution? Can we see best practice? And if it's not demonstrated by senior leaders to us, how do we know what is best, best practice? So, um, and even the whole notion of toxic, you know, productivity, people being productive, making displays, simply because they've got time to make a display or they've got to take an objective off for the day. I like to think that if I've taught my lessons to a, a, a respectable level, to a respectable level, and I've kept my respect intact as well while teaching those lessons as well, I like to think I've done okay. But I think there's this notion that we have to look busy all the time as teachers, which, again, leads to things like burnout and people becoming more and more disillusioned what we're doing. And, you know, you can see our retention and recruitment figures, you know, the amount of teachers that have left the profession in the past, I think it was 40,000, I think in 2019, I can't imagine what's going to be like post pandemic, but um, we've got to somehow find a, a middle ground that works. That's, you know, aid student progress also um, you know, allows teachers to have some form of work-life balance. It shouldn't be the case to have to have a, have a day off or, you know, go part-time simply to have a work-life balance. Teaching should fit around our lives. That's what I think anyway. No, I agree with you completely. I think we've got the well-being paradox, haven't we? Well-being is at the forefront of the teaching agenda. Mm. But if you speak to, to some teachers, at least, not everybody feels very well. Mm. Um, and ultimately, if you are in a good or outstanding school, then you should feel well in the sense that you should feel supported. Your senior leaders um, should have structures and systems in place that allow for that balance to exist because it's a profession and we're professionals, but we don't exist just as professionals. We exist as human beings. Mm -hmm. So once we go home, there needs to be space 
for home life. There needs to be space for relationships and for exercise mm. and overall health and well-being because your purpose on the earth, while one of them might be to educate, there is more to life than that. No, I absolutely agree with you. And I think a lot of teachers in particular I speak to, particularly the ones who've got their own families, they're able to create a bit more of a work-life balance, but it's the dare I say, you know, the young single ones, the, the newbies, the young ones who are fresh into the teaching profession, they, they are spending virtually every hour. I think over the summer, I put a tweet out about when I did my NQT four years ago, um, I spent the entire summer in the school marking and planning, you know, getting things ready, um, doing displays, painting classroom walls, laying down floor tiles. By the time October half term came, I was burnt out. I was finished. And right. if I look back at it now, did I need to do those things? Yeah, I had the most beautiful looking classroom, but was I well at the end of it? No, if anything, you know, it, it became a job and not a vocation. And I think so many of us are keen to avoid it becoming a, vo becoming a job and staying as a vocation. The only way we can do that is having that separation between the spheres. Yeah, I think so. If you're going to be a teacher, you have to love it. Mm. You have to love it because you are there working with young people um, you know, depending on your subject, I see some of my classes four or five times a week and you are a key figure in those kids' lives. You need to be positive and healthy and they need to see that you are, yes, you're a teacher, you're there, you're delivering curriculum, you're sharing knowledge with them, but you're also a role model of what an adult looks like. Absolutely. You are a role model of what an adult looks like and that is a serious responsibility. You are there to model what adult health looks like, what adult well-being looks like, what adult success looks like, and happiness, especially if you are teaching children who come from home lives where some of their adults don't do that successfully. Yep. Those things are really important. There is an alternative to the life that you have, and education is the key. And I, I, I feel like a walking cliche whenever I say that. I really do. <laughs> I really do. Um, I do think education is the key. I really, <laughs> I really do. I mean, look, I'm back at uni. How many times have I been? I can't remember. Um, fourth or fifth time now. Um, but I've, for me personally, education is the key to happiness and overall well-being and health. Now I know that is not it's not completely true for everybody. Not everybody is academic. However, there are certain qualifications. And as an English teacher, I feel this particularly strongly that unlock the world to you. If you've got your English GCSE, the world opens you, you know, opens up to you. It opens its arms to you. You want to go and do a plumbing course at college? Have you got your pass in English? Cool. I'm in. Have you not got your pass in English? Sorry, you've got to do that first. So I feel that education is the key. And I know that I teach a core subject and I feel a massive sense of responsibility because of that. Um, I think it's hugely, hugely important. Literacy generally is hugely important. Um, yeah, it started off with teacher well-being, the fact that we're role models, to me, getting on my soapbox and talking about oh, wine. Absolutely fine, but... 
to get, get to know you as an educator and, and get a real flavour of sort of like the background that you come from and everything and your perspective on things. Teacher well-being is a very interesting, uh, it's a very interesting thing. So uh, not too long ago, I won, or a couple of years ago, I won colleague of the term. I kept voting mm. for myself. That's how I won it. I'm not going to lie to you. I continued to vote for myself and I, I did win it. And you know, I'm, I'm a member of staff and someone gave me a bottle of Chardonnay and uh, I was very confused. I was thinking, you know what? Maybe I'd win like a Rolls Royce. So I was being, I thought, you know, something really nice I'd win. And it's a bottle of wine. I was like, All right, fair enough, you know, I, I can't drink it. So I just gave it to one of the cleaners. But even that consciousness, that cultural sensitivity, knowing your staff, knowing that if, I, if we get something for well-being, it needs to be you know, representative. It needs to be something that everyone yeah. can access and have. I remember um, one of our members of staff, he was in a wheelchair. It's a good two or three years ago, and he won colleague of the term or colleague of the year, whatever it was. And his um, he couldn't access the hall because there wasn't wheelchair access into the hall. So he won it. He stood in the fire exit, which I thought was a, a, a real like um, a, a damning indictment of where the school was at the time in terms of its inclusion, diversity, etc. And I, and I always remember thinking back, how must he have felt? How must how, how demoralized must he have felt the fact that he couldn't access the main hall of the school or access wasn't made available to him? Surely that's better than winning a bottle of wine. That's my opinion anyway. So I think pitching it at people in a sensitive way is really important. So well-being is not a one-size-fits-all sort of approach. It's also, it's not a bottle of wine mm. and it's not a spa afternoon and it's not arts and crafts on an inset day. Mm. It is not a plaster for all of the cuts that you've picked up in the term it's doing what you can to prevent the cuts and it's doing what you can to protect your colleagues and help your colleagues and sometimes teacher well-being is walking in to the English office or to the staff room on a really tough day and somebody saying to you you know what you look like you're having a difficult day what can I do to help right now yeah. I was talking to a friend last night we teach at different schools and then um, she's an un qualified English teacher doing her English um, degree because she wants to become a qualified English teacher wow. which I the most amazing thing in the world right so she's an unqualified English teacher unqualified scale still pretty much a full timetable she is a phenomenal woman um, she's doing her English degree in her spare time she had a an assignment due and she had felt that the workload had been unsustainable I mean Things are difficult for qualified teachers at the moment. She's unqualified and doing an undergraduate degree. And she's a mum. So she has a lot on her plate. Yeah. She had an assignment due at noon and she hadn't finished. And one of her colleagues took a look at her and said, you know, you, you're not looking good today. What's up? And can I help? And between themselves, using their free lessons, colleagues covered for her so that she could finish her assignment. That's what it should be. And that I think that is teacher well-being, stepping in and protecting each other and helping each other when it really matters. Mm -hmm. If the marking workload is too much, sometimes leadership saying, you have a particularly heavy marking workload, we're going to give you an afternoon off this week to help with your marking workload or you're not going to be put in to invigilate for the exam so that you can use that time to do your marking. Um, I've been really fortunate to work in schools where those systems have been put in place. And I think that I'm, I'm lucky that I've seen it because if you haven't seen things that have been put in place to protect people and their well-being, sometimes 
you get tunnel vision and you feel like this is really hard and I can't see a way out. Mm. Um, so when somebody puts their hand out to you and says, let me help you, I think that's it for me anyway. The well-being is let me help you. It is, absolutely. Job. It can be long hours um, and sometimes it can be thankless, particularly with the attacking narrative in the general media. That can be really hard when you've had a really tough day at school and you see in the papers teachers are being branded as lazy and they don't work hard enough and they're overpaid and they were on full pay throughout lockdown they're not working those narratives can be very they can be very difficult um to stomach so when your colleagues say let me help you that that i think is what well-being is in my experience no i totally agree with you i def- definitely think it's people stepping in when they realize a crisis is happening or before a crisis absolutely yeah um and i think it, it, a lot of that really manifests top down from senior leadership who take well-being seriously and don't make it a one-off event um um, I think what's happened is the the idea itself became a hashtag really quickly, and then mm. everything became about teacher well-being. So people were, you know, having curry nights together, and that was well-being. And they were doing, you know, after-school ping pong and things like that, or you know, and and basketball and netball, and that would become the whole well-being sort of veneer that everyone operated by. I think changing that gaze and realizing that we have got a workload problem is very serious. The workload problem in education full stop is very serious. You know, my own worker, like I said to you before we started as well, I'm just trying to cope with my lessons and nothing else. Whatever goes on in the world, I pick you up at 4.30 when I leave the building. Before that, whilst I'm there from 7.30 to 4.30, I just focus on my job that day. Nothing more and nothing less. Doing my duties, doing my registers, you know, my safeguarding, everything else we do around just the job that we do ourselves. So I think you're right. Wellbeing needs to be, you know, embedded into day-to-day interactions as well. And, I think we talk about kindness as well and how it's been kind of like, and it's kind of full circle how kindness has existed in Britain. So when Caroline Flack passed away and kindness became mm. the, the ultimate thing, you know, if you could be anything in the world, be kind. And you know, people were throwing kindness around like confetti, weren't they, at one stage in January? You know, come, you know, December now, we're, you know, approaching, you know, how many deaths from COVID and, and the way teachers are being treated as well. It's a, it's a dark time. If anything, you know, we should be reverting back to that January sort of like enthusiasm about kindness and re-embedding into our interactions. I agree with you. I do agree with you. But I do not think kindness should be radical. Mm. I do not think kindness should be radical. Uh, for me, it is a basic expectation yes. that human interactions are going to be kind. I want my colleagues to be kind. I want to be kind to my colleagues and I want my children, my students, I want them to see that I'm kind and I'm kind to them and that there is a culture of kindness, that it is normal. You know, this idea, this be kind being a hashtag on the internet that suggests that being kind is somehow radical, that that's some kind of activism in itself. That's wrong. That is wrong that we need that. that there is a serious imbalance if we need to remind each other to be kind. I mean, I feel like that's really callous me saying that. I don't mean to be callous. I just, I'm disappointed. I am disappointed that we have to promote it like that on social media, that it has to trend on Twitter and Instagram, that people die um, at like 
this this altar so that there's there's this shared collective responsibility for kindness i agree with you that that really that is the foundation isn't it be kind let me help you what can i do for you i've got your back we're professionals together we're a unit yep i think that sense of unity is really important as well where you have any kind of really deep seated division there are problems and there are tensions um that being a team is so important for for us as professionals but also for the children when i've worked on teams where the staff are they you know they're they're gelled and they move together um and there's that sense of cohesion and consistency the the kids respect all of the professionals in the same way and they behave in the same way where the children feel that there is a division or that there are teachers that don't support other teachers they can smell it they know they know mm. and that's when you start to get problems with behavior as well because there's a lack of consistency and there's this sense that the, the teachers are not supporting one another mm. and the student body becomes aware of it and it becomes part of the fabric of the school and I think from the things that I've seen in my very short teaching career of um, seven going on to eight years I think that's where you get your biggest problems and trying to shift that on the staff body takes real real skill and hard work and very experienced leaders i've seen it done once um, in one of the four schools that i've worked in and trying to shift the culture of a school extremely difficult once the damage has been done absolutely absolutely and you're right what you say about children picking up on things you know uh, children see through bs quite well actually to be fair you know <laughs> Uh, they these 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 young puppies man they know what's real they know what's fake and you know, they often pull me over they go can't don't say it like that i'm like right, cool fine i'll change how i speak and whatnot i change the sort of language i use but they are so black and white and it's the small things i think me and oliver uh, oliver wright spoke about it. oliver slt you know i know he's, i know he's listening he always listens to the podcast as well he spoke spoke about people leaving a tray of glues in your glue sticks in your classroom the way they're left they could be tossed onto a table or gently placed with a smile Children pick up on that and they know I've worked in an environment where my line manager used to um, very openly give me very uh, demeaning looks and the children used to pick up on that. It's, oh, why, why is she looking at you like that? I'm like, oh, no, there's no problem. We're cool. But they knew something was up. And eventually, by the time I actually spoke to this person, the rapport had kind of already been broken and lost. We lost it. You know, a lot was lost in translation with that. But you're right kindness doesn't need to be a radical out there you know uh populist thing if you can't be kind to someone leave them alone wouldn't that just be fine you know just yeah i think it kind of links to what we're talking about trauma dumping i know we started talking about that but it kind of links yeah. to yeah uh so rosie okay we've got a couple more questions here for you okay i'm just conscious of time as well um what has been your proudest moment as a teacher so far Oh, I, th- I thought if you could choose one. <laughs> my my answer is really cheesy. I'm I just I'm proud every day. 
I'm proud every day for different reasons. Um, I'm proud when I mark a piece of work and a student has made brilliant progress or they've listened to some of the feedback they were given. Um, I think like feelings of immense pride in myself as a teacher are usually when a child picks English at A-level because then it's a choice. And that, that for me, I feel like I've won because up until the end of GCSE, English is compulsory. Mm. And when a child chooses English and they've been in my class, I feel like a winner. Um, and yeah, teaching A-level, I, I love it. It's one of my, the highlights of my week. Um, if a child then goes on to do English at university, you can bet I'm gonna cry. Um, <laughs> when children tell me or young adults tell me in my A-level class they've applied to do English at uni, I actually get a bit teary because I feel like I have done my job. I feel like I have delivered the curriculum in such a way that they've been engaged and that they've loved it. Um, so yeah, and on, you know, results days because not because of what the grade stands for, but because the fact that it's a passport onto the next stage. Yep. If you've got your pass and you're going to go on to be a mechanic and that's your dream and you needed English to get there and I helped you get there. I feel so good about that, you know? So if I've opened doors, I'm proud. Um, that's when I feel like I'm, I was put on the earth to do this and I've done it. And in one way or another, I've supported you to go and change the world in your, your own way. And yeah, so that's what I see my role as. Ultimately, you're right. Absolutely. We're here to raise, you know, the next generation of citizens to be socially aware, you know, conscious of our, you know, our, the inequalities of our society, you know, aware of the damage of the climate, you know, small things like that. Just being sensible, respectable citizens, citizens for our society. And we do that through our interactions with them. And like you say, we model behaviours, you know. What yeah. they see from us is, you know, what they will probably go out and you know, model in themselves in the future. You, sometimes, you know, it can be one class. I'm very fortunate in my NQT, I had one class who, it just clicked from the moment I walked in there. It, and they were all boys and it was like a, we used to talk about football for half an hour and then we teach for half an hour, that sort of thing. We used to have two hour lessons together, back to back. It was RE mm. and some class, it just clicks. And I was just constantly proud of walking in there and seeing how respectful they were to each other, not just yeah. to me. They'd hand each other books out. This is a class who'd put each other in the headlocks at the beginning <laughs> of the year. Towards the end of the year, they were opening doors for one another. And there was such a sense of kindness in the classroom and that just come from interactions that we had with them. And you're right. I think, you know, the small things that we do, you know, they, they have an impact. And, you know, we as teachers, we should be proud of going into work every single day. It shouldn't be a burden. It should be a blessing. No, there's so much that's lovely about it. You know, it's small things like sometimes when you're in your classroom and you see the kids arriving in the morning and somebody drops a bit of litter and then they pick it up. I feel proud yep. because nobody is looking. And one of my favorite things is, um, you know, people say the definition of integrity is what you do when no one's watching. Yes. Yes. I've had that quote. I feel like if my students have integrity and they don't know I've seen it, but they've shown a kindness mm. or they've done the right thing, whether that's protecting the planet or looking after a friend or if my students have integrity, I, that is actually the most important thing for me. That is the most important thing for me. If my students 
are good human beings and I had a part to play in that. Um, I would go as far as to say that's more important than any qualification that I can teach them. No. You can go back and you can do the GCSEs again. Not that I want you to and it will be hard for you. Mm. But if you are a good human being and people are kind to you and you are kind to them and you have support, you can go on to do anything. If you are an abhorrent person and nobody wants you to do well and you don't have the support, good luck getting anywhere. Mm. So, no, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So they, it's about fostering that sort of culture within your classroom to say not only that they can achieve, but also you're looking out for the more holistic pastoral side to them as well, rather than just, you know, they come in, take a registry, start teaching. You want to know how they are. You want to know how they're doing as well as what they're doing as well. Yeah, look, they are the future leaders. Mm. They are the future leaders. One of us is teaching the next prime minister. Hopefully, we yeah. Ho hopefully, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> we don't know who is, but someone is. Someone's teaching the next prime minister. Someone's teaching a brilliant surgeon or somebody who's going to go on to be a professor at a university. Somebody's teaching a generation of teachers mm. and they're going to go on to share their values. Um, I think that responsibility cannot be underplayed. We are integral figures in that respect. We are role models. We are there every day. Um, come rain or shine, during the good, the bad and the ugly, mm. we're there and the students see us. So if they remember that you were kind and that you tried your best and that you made them feel safe and secure and they learned when they were with you, that's that's what it's all about isn't it and there's a special kind of magic when you have those days and those lessons where all of those components are there it's magical there's nothing like it no you're absolutely right yeah uh really brings me back to my nqt actually yeah we used to have uh particularly in that year where because it started off such a difficult class so challenging with their behavior and it took a lot of time initially to start. It, click, it did click initially straight away, but it took a lot of time to just embed the small things, the sort of like, you know, just classroom routines. And once you become a consistent figure in their lives, you can see how they, their behavior changed. They know what to expect, you know, and it's the lack of consistency they may have at home or in society full stop, especially with this pandemic. No one knows what's going on. School is there. It's our safe place as well as their safe place as well. Do you know... <laughs> I'm going to be honest, I think that maybe my students might think I'm extreme, um, particularly when I take on a new year 10 class. By the time they get to year 11, they're so well trained, they already know. Mm. But with the year 10 group, I learned this from um, a teacher that taught my brother. So I started to work at the school my brother was at when he was in year 13. So it was really interesting. Oh, wow. That must have been, yeah, that must have been something. Yeah, yeah. They, they knew who I was as a teacher because we were in the same borough. Um, but my brother's a very different character to me. I think it's fair to say that I don't think he would disagree at all. Okay. Um, he's not academic, and the school were aware of that. And they were trying to get him over the line with his A-levels. And I am really quite academic, and I like book smart um and so we're very very different and when I got there somebody actually said to me I hope you're not going to be anything like your brother and um, oh, wow. <laughs> I, I said I hope it reassures you that I'm not 
Uh, and then I kind of had to work harder, I felt, to prove myself to the general staff body that we were not the same. Mm. Um, but anyway, that's an aside. So I was, I was working there and I've forgotten what I was saying. What was the question? Um. Right. I, I met one of his history teachers and this guy is a legend at the school he has been there for so long he has taught sons fathers brothers cousins friends neighbors he's taught history to the entire community okay he's really well known um and i said to him you know like what's your secret and he said to me it's routines and one of the things that he does is he gets the kids to number the pages in their exercise books and to create a contents page at the front of the book and I asked him to show me because I was completely fascinated by this. First time I'd ever heard it. He's Irish. And he said, look, I'm old school, but I promise you this works. So he showed me and he gets every child to number the pages of their exercise book. And on the front, there's a contents page. And the contents page includes date, the page number of the exercise book, the title of the work. And um, I asked him to show me how it works and I loved it so much because I am a neat freak. Uh, so now that's something that I do as part of the routines that I have in place. So when the students come into the room, first thing they do when they write down the title and learning objective, they check the page number and they fill out their contents page. And it really helps with stuff like homework because when I say, can you please make sure your homework is in the contents page? I don't have to search for it anymore. I can check the contents page. My homework's on page 18. I find it and I can mark it really easily. Um, That's a really like genius, smart, old school hack. Yeah. Really smart. What yeah. I don't think I just learned so much from this guy. And um, the wow. great thing was obviously like he taught my brother. So I had heard... I, I like, I knew the myth before the man because my brother would come home and say, you won't believe what he did today. And um, I'd heard all of these outlandish stories about him. He is very eccentric. Um, and when he taught me that, I have done it ever since. And it's really funny because now all of my students who I have taught meet my incoming cohort will say, you know, she'll get you to write down the page number on every page. And some of them come in and they, they almost look like scared and like, oh, are you going to get me to write down the page numbers in my book? And I say, yeah, we're going to write down the page numbers in your book. So I, I suppose it's like the legend continued, but it is almost, it's theatrical. It's not necessarily a completely um, important thing, but it is one of the structures that I have and they know it. It's familiar. Yeah. If I missed a lesson and they've got cover work, they've put pages 32 to 35 is cover work. Mm -hmm. And it kind of, it allows this sense of, I know what's coming. Mm -hmm. The title and the learning objective are going to be on the board. The date's going to be on the board. She's going to give me three minutes to write those things down. Mm -hmm. And then I have to fill out my contents page and then we will begin. So it's just coming back to the idea of safety and routines. I do think they're really important. I think safety routines and relationships mm. are integral to yeah, successful student teacher relationships. And once you've got the relationship down and they feel safe with you, then they can learn. No, you're absolutely right. One thing I love about that routine is tried and tested. It's been passed on by generations. And the fact yeah. that you adapted it 
It's, you've seen it. This is one thing I love about when teachers observe other teachers. You've seen what's worked in someone else's car. It's actually worked. You've seen it. You can now adapt it rather than it be something the school roll out as a policy. We're doing this and that's the end of it. If you've seen it physically working in demonstration and someone's made success out of it, you adapt it to your practice. You're like, damn, that was really good. And the legacy gets passed on and carried on and, and then it becomes a routine. So that, that's, how, that's, how we, that's how we teach. You know, we, we, you know, we model other people's practice in our own teaching. I pay homage to Mr. Lewis, who, who used to say, <laughs> comedy first, teaching second. And I've kind of operated that way, you know, Dan. You know, my motto is, you know, I'm here for a good time, not a long time. And that's what he lived by as well. So it's really important that we, we, we can adapt. That's a really good smart hack. If you're listening, if you're an NQT listening, you know, uh, you should copyright that. I think you should copyright that. <laughs> Well, your textbooks you content pages you know <laughs> content. it's a very smart idea actually i really do like that I, th that's what teaching is right you've got the mentor and the mentee i mean i was a qualified teacher at the point at which i moved to that school but i always feel that i'm learning from my colleagues whether they're more or less experienced than me but i have to say um i came into teaching at a time where we the retention crisis had kind of really taken hold of the profession and um more experienced members of staff were leaving um and i just felt that i was learning so much from them and do you know what on the subject of kindness they are the kindest human beings on the planet some of them watched me fall over onto my backside and didn't laugh you know, I, cause I was so exhausted. My foot just went and I had a big box of books. They all skidded. Oh, wow. oh. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And my glasses came off my face and skidded across the floor. That was the force with which I hit the ground. Oh wow. That, that must have been, yeah. It must've been awful. <laughs> I've embarrassed myself a lot. I'm not going to lie. I've embarrassed myself a lot as a teacher. I've done things like managed to lock myself in the toilets um, and be late oh, to a that's lesson. Happened to me. That's happened to me on purpose. Oh, I don't think I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've set off the fire alarm by straightening my hair in the ladies' toilets. The entire school had oh. to line up outside in the rain. That must have been like, quite embarrassing. Um, all students, all staff, non-teaching staff as well. Because um, I singed my hair. So I went outside and... I was really embarrassed. I kind of sidled up to the head teacher and I said, um, cause they didn't know what the cause was. They kind of, they went back to like, I don't know if it's the main switchboard or whatever it is. They could identify that it was, it had been set off in the ladies toilets, but they had no idea why there was a fire in the ladies toilets. Um, so I had to go and say to the head teacher, I'm really sorry. I like to operate on honesty. So I'm just going to tell you that I burnt my hair in the ladies' toilets and I set off the fire alarm. Uh, I got a special mention in briefing that week because I was given thanks for leading on the, um, the fire drill, which was due to take place that half term. So they kind of, they took what I had done and used it as a fire drill, but that was embarrassing. So yeah, experienced colleagues and the kindness that they're willing to show trainees. Mm -hmm. 
cannot be undervalued absolutely are you shout out to our staff our members of staff who are on tlrs and ups they don't get the respect they deserve many of them <laughs> really have to continue justifying their existence you know massive shout out to you guys and massive shout out to Gemma Waite who looked after me during my nqt yeah she was uh trying she's uh, going for promotion after promotion she's on upper ups and uh just put her arm around me honestly rosie she put my arm around me say to me shreb this is how we do it you know don't forget this deadline it was a small like mothering things the little details you know i'd walk in late some morning she goes shreb don't worry i've you know i'll, I'll put a computer room for you etc uh it was a small things our, i our staff on ups you know our experienced teachers you know deserve a lot of respect i'm in my fifth year i don't consider myself as the most experienced i'm not but you know our experienced teachers deserve so much more respect than than, than they receive at times yeah, I, no, I agree. My mentor, when I was training, um, I don't, I didn't realise how obvious it was that I was struggling, put it that way. And um, I came in one day and there was a card in my pigeonhole with a chocolate bar and the card said, you're doing great, keep it up. And I read it and I burst into tears um, because she had recognised that it was really tough and I was trying really hard and she was a brilliant mentor to me. She was always incredibly, incredibly kind um, to everybody. And I'm, I really think that I'm lucky that I had her as a mentor. She's made me the teacher I am, definitely. I'm still friends with her today. She is a true professional in every aspect of the word. And yeah, she was an experienced member of staff. So I have so much, so much to thank uh, the teachers who taught me those, like those tricks. They definitely made me who I am. Um, I've been just really lucky to work with some brilliant people. I think, yeah, myself as well included, to be fair, I've, I've, I've been very fortunate to even like connect with many fantastic educators as well, whether it's through social media, it's open um, through Zoom, podcasting, etc, writing blogs. I think it's uh, everyone's got a library of knowledge we can tamper into and we can walk into and, and gain things out and learn things out. We're always on a, lear a constant learning journey. I remember I observed a teacher once during my NQT. He used to have an overhead projector. Remember them overhead projectors? Those yeah. right on. He used, to, he used to teach from that. He's a maths teacher, Mr. Smith. He's retired now, bless him. And I remember he used to wheel it around the school. He used to make a real, like, wheel, really annoying squeak. The wheel was like, it needed oiling or something. And he'd wheel it around the school. And that was his teaching and learning toolbox, nothing else. He didn't have a planner. He just had his overhead projector. And he taught maths. He bossed results. He was incredible. And... I just learned so much because he knew the students. He'd pitch questions at them, like you know, grade eight or grade nine questions, knew them off the top of his head and students would write them down. His marking was fantastic as well, but he refused to do PowerPoint. He refused to do computers. And you know, those mavericks, those people, they still bring a smile to my face. They do exist. There's less and less of them out there, but um, <laughs> there are some incredibly experienced teachers who we can pick little nuggets of information out of and adapt them into our practice. And not only that, just appreciate their brilliance. Yeah, I, know, I do. I mean, I'm, I'm all for the maverick and the underdog. Uh, there's a part of me that really respects like that rebellious streak. And I think that actually quite a lot of teachers have it. Um, definitely the ones, maybe, the, maybe there are lots of them in English departments for sure. But um, <laughs> I've definitely worked with lots of teachers who have a wicked sense of humour. 
and who are rule breakers and revolutionaries in one way or another. They're pioneering new things or, you know, using strategies that they know work that are really old school and modernizing them. Um, it's a great job in that respect because it's been, it's been done forever. Mm. And like, there's this like really long lineage of what it means to teach and what it means to learn. Um, yeah. And we're part of that, which is great. No, I definitely agree with you. I definitely, definitely agree with you. Right, I'm just conscious of time, okay? But I've got one yeah. really big question for you. I have to ask everyone, okay? You've been bracing yourself for this question, okay? I know the audience <laughs> as well, okay? What? We're approaching Christmas time, okay? Yeah. It's on your playlist. Oh, Christmas is Michael Bublé for sure. I was listening to E17 this morning just for the sake of it. So <laughs> I'm not really a Christmas like song person like but i thought i'd give them a go today um my usual go-to i mean i grew up on like jennifer lopez and craig david i love craig david the early craig david shout out to carl poope again action hero teacher not the not the current craig david the the weird henchman he's not i mean like the early 2000s is that the right one yeah born to do it and things like that yes yes well we were um we were living in cyprus at the time and my mum came to the UK to see her dad. He hadn't been very well. And this is back when Woolworths existed. And oh, wow, the pick-a-mix. Remember those days? Yeah, those are the days. You know, the kids don't know, kids don't know what they're missing. And yeah, she came back with like CDs from Craig David and Jennifer Lopez. And I remember having Britney Spears and Billy Piper on repeat. Billy Piper's cool. I like, and what was she doing with Lawrence Fox? Goodness. Listen, Billy, you're probably listening to this. You're probably not. Even if you are, yeah. What, what, what happened? What's happened to him? I'm sorry. I just need to say that. I'm sorry. Uh, you were saying, Rosie, what else have you got on your playlist? Yeah. So I like, I swing between that, but when I'm, when I'm writing, I like to listen to jazz. Okay. Okay, yeah, that, 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 um... It's an eclectic mix. Okay, that is an eclectic mix. When I, when I write, <laughs> I listen to, like, Cleopatra and, like, uh, you know, Top Loader and, 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 and anything 90s, early 2000s, that's a very nostalgic time. I didn't, I was yeah. quite young at the time during that period, but it's just, life was so much simple that like you'd come <laughs> over and you'd watch, like, Rush Hour, you know, yeah. and things like that, and Ready, Steady, Cook, uh, and you know Keenan and Keller were on TV and things like that. Those are the yeah. good, those are innocent days. I think uh, <laughs> those are the really really good times. No, no, Rosie, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on Anti Small Talk. Rosie, do you have a blog? Where can our uh, where can our uh, listeners find you? Blog, website, Instagram, plug as you wish. Uh, as you wish. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at edufeminist. Um, my presence is really quite low key. If you want to find me on Instagram. It's Rosie's Feminist PhD, where I'm really kind of logging, cataloging, archiving the feminist content that I'm going to be looking at in my research. Um, so, yeah, but Twitter is really the place where I'm responding and engaging. Instagram is definitely an archiving project, but by all means, please come and join me, contribute. I'd be more than happy to see you there. 
No, absolutely. Everyone listening, this is a fantastic educator, a wonderful, wonderful human being, and just a very genuine person. We use the word kindness a lot today. When we first had st- uh, struck up a conversation, I thought there's someone we need to have on the podcast and a voice that deserves to be elevated in education in our massive echo chamber. You know, we've got to try try and provide our you know our authentic voice and opportunity to have a seat at the table. But honestly, it's been absolutely incredible, Rosie, and I'm almost certain it's going to happen again at some stage when you're yeah. to launch. You know, and anti small talks hitting like millions and millions of views we can have you back on there absolutely i would really love that no thank you so much for your time though you too thank you thank you